Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker. And folks, on today's show, we are thrilled to have with us and in our interview with Marco Bertini. How's it going, Ron? Great, Ed. Let's get to it. I've been really looking forward to having Marco on. Yes, you read the, his book back in June. I've read I it uh, re more recently. In fact, was just finishing up the last chapters a couple of minutes ago before we got on the air. But uh, awesome. think think we're well prepared and ready to go. Let me let me read the quick bio. Marco Bottini is the professor of marketing at Asade and a visiting professor in marketing at the Harvard Business School. He is also a senior advisor to the marketing sales and pricing practice at the Boston Consulting Group. He received his doctorate from Harvard Business School and previously served on the faculty at the London Business School. The subject for today's conversation is his book, which he co-authored, The Ends Game, How Smart Companies Stop Selling Products and Start Delivering Value. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Ed and Ron, thank you very much for inviting me. It's, uh, it's a real great pleasure to be here. Well, we are happy to have you. So just quickly, before we get to your book, you, you're Italian, you grew up in Australia, but you lived right. in Spain and the United States. So give us a quick whirlwind tour. <laughs> yeah, uh, we could take the whole hour, I think, I suppose, on this. So, so um, well, oh the really short story is that um, uh, Italian, all my family is Italian. Um, my dad, back in 86, he used to work for a company called Bertolli, which you might know, the olive oil company. And so they asked him at the time, do you want to open up the branch in Australia? And he said, yeah, sure, let's go. And so we all moved to Australia. I uh, grew up there and then uh, I wanted to come back to Europe, but I didn't want to come back to Italy. So I went to Spain the first time, uh, did my MBA there, met my wife at the MBA program, orientation week of all places. And then from there, a PhD in the U.S., uh, first academic job in the UK and then back to Spain. That's kind of like, and now in the US, so it's kind of, yeah. doing, it's going in circles somewhat. <laughs> well, as you said, or go, or, or turn, turning back to where you, where, where, the, where you started, where the roots were, right? Depends so, on your perspective. Exactly. That's right. That's right. All right. So let's, let's, let's jump in. What is the ends game? Right. So the ends game is, uh, there's different ways of labeling it, but the ends game is, first of all, play with words, right? So, you know, we all know that there's an end game to things, right? But mm -hmm. the ends game is, 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 we use that title on purpose because we try to make a claim in the book, or we make a claim in the book, hopefully people believe us, uh, that, you know, when it comes to, um, not necessarily when it comes to putting prices on things, but when it comes to thinking where do we generate revenue from in our enterprise uh, we tend to focus on the stuff that we make the means to our customers ends now you see where the words coming in as opposed to the ends themselves right so if i say to the world 
uh, I don't know, if I said to the world, I am a mining company, right? And I, and I provide uh, efficient rock blasting, right? Uh, that's kind of my marketing tagline. But then, of course, I don't necessarily make money off that. I make money off the, the, the ingredients that go behind that, so the explosives that go behind that, right? And so that's kind of the idea. The Ends Game is a book that sort of talks about not prices, but how the logic of pricing, right? Where should my revenue come from? And um, I guess we'll go through this uh, more across the hour. But the, the main message is, as a company, we tend to become, we tend to stop being customer focused when it comes to generating revenue. And that is a big mistake, in our opinion. And yeah. it really is a, a, it's t- something I think, believe in. you also talk about Peter Drucker that he, he quoted, you know, sell what your customers buy. It sounds deceptively simple, but it's amazing how often companies do not sell with their customers buy. I, I agree with you. And, and look, uh, this is my own and my co-author's interpretation. So we, we, we all know that uh, that statement, right? And and uh, we can also think back to statement, the, the classic sort of example of, hey, people want to buy the hole in the wall, not the drill, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the, the Levitt sort of quote from back from 1960, I believe, at the beginning of customer orientation. But when you see these quotes, the, typically the, the company says, I get it. You're telling me that when I produce stuff, I'm not meant to think about the stuff that I'm producing. I'm not meant to think who is it for and what needs to satisfy and they re-engineer my marketing that way. And, and we all, and, and very few of us would disagree with that, right? You think about the customer and you work your way backwards. They typically do not think how it goes, keeps going beyond the moment of sale, right? And you think also and the way I monetize things it should follow the same rule because ultimately it's your customers who have money in their wallets. So they're the one who pay you. But somehow we stop thinking about them. We think more about, geez, uh, what is our cost? Uh, what is my risk tolerance factor? You know, uh, and, and things that are very much internally driven as opposed to market driven. Right. They look internally and not and out outside. And there's a refrain to the book. I think that uh, I think uh, I, I counted this four or five times, at least maybe it's more. But you come back to these three basic questions. How often and how do our customers use our solution? Where and why do they use it? And how satisfied are our customers? So let's let's talk a little bit about that refrain. Let's maybe even break it apart. The first one: how how often and how do our customers use our solution? Right. I think that's uh, uh, that, that that is. I mean, that is sort of the crux of the argument in the book. So, well, the the main the main idea is what I, we just talked about. Mm-hmm. But if you then break it down a little bit, and if you follow that principle that the way you should think about monetizing anything is from the customer in, then you start asking yourself: Okay, how is customer a customer value derived? So if you ask that question, you quickly come down to the fact that there are three ingredients that together are what an economist would say necessary and sufficient. You need all three. And when you have all three, you're good to go, right? So if I provide a product or service for the customer to derive value, first of all, the customer has to have access to that particular product or service. So access is the first step. If your customer does not reach your product or service, then clearly nothing can happen, right? And we can then talk about the types of access problems that may exist in any market. Okay, but then once access is not enough. Um, take, for example, many social enterprises, actually. Let's go to the nonprofit world for a second. A lot of nonprofits will say, hey, I, I want to have impact in the world, so I'm going to provide access to water solutions, to food safety solutions. But that's just the first stone, the first stepping stone, right? The next thing is that your customer has to consume that particular solution whether it's a product or a service. If there is no consumption or if there's underconsumption or overconsumption, then you also have a problem that there is, no, there, is, there is no efficiency in that process. So access first, 
consumption second clearly and third and, and last in order to derive value that product or service has to upon consumption has to perform if it doesn't perform then it doesn't uh, you can use it until you go blue in the face but you know it just doesn't do anything for you right and so there you go you got three things access consumption and performance which must be must happen in order for your customer to derive value and then from that from that sort of breakdown in the book we sort of say your typical revenue model does it help any of these three things and and by typical i mean just you know taking my product and putting it on a shelf in a store somewhere like the, the transactional sort of model right and actually if you think about it it's a very very poor form of access very full because you have to go out of your way to get it it might be expensive to get it and that, and that's it doesn't do anything so it's a, it's a very poor form of access and that's the end of the story doesn't do anything for consumption doesn't do anything for performance and so then then I'll, i know that i speak way too much but the point is that whenever i have a model that is that doesn't address these three things then bad stuff can happen right the customer has a lot of risk on on his or her shoulders and and that risk you know ultimately um, leads to some sort of some sort of detriment to the company in the form of a lower market a smaller market lower willingness to pay uh, and whatnot so let's talk a little bit about that because I think this yeah. is getting to the crux of it and hopefully setting up Ron for some some really good stuff in the next segment. But f- talk about what are some access problems, what are some, con- some consumption problems and performance problems? Sure. What, let's, let's start with access. Yeah, so, so let's go with access. So access, I think, is a relatively easy term to sort of comprehend, right? Again, it's the idea that I don't reach your product. But then if you think about it a little bit, it gets quite nuanced and quite interesting. And the first sort of branch in, in, the, in the tree is like, financial access versus physical access financial access as the term suggests is i literally cannot afford this right you're asking me because your transactional model you want to take no risk mr company so you're just trying to sell stuff that that puts you know that asked me to buy the thing outright and so this can happen when in situations where the product in question is an expensive one so a car a house a piece of industrial equipment so anything that requires a high uh, a high um, um, high expenditure upfront is going to provide is going to potential is is a fruitful ground for a different kind of revenue model. Um, it gets even more interesting. It doesn't have to be one purchase that is ex- that is expensive. What about something like uh, a wardrobe or fashion, a music library, a uh, library of books? Every single one of these items is not expensive, but what people buy is variety. You buy a library, you buy a wardrobe, you buy a collection. And so altogether, that is expensive. If you had to own all of your music, that, that gets expensive. If you had to own all of the clothes you like to own, that gets expensive. So, so, so financial access is really about the upfront expenditure I must to incur in order to, have the, you know, to derive the value that I want. Physical access, on the other hand, has nothing to do with the product, it product, the price itself, but has to do with the actual availability of it, right? So any product that is bought on a frequent basis, you think about it, you have to, you know, if you may, you may run out of products, so you might stock out. Uh, you know, I, I would like to shave uh, every day, but hey, I forgot to buy the shavers and therefore I don't shave today. That's a, that's a physical access problem. Um, or it's just inconvenient. I have to run down to the store and get it and it's just inconvenient. I could be spending my time doing other things. And any product category where there is an issue of convenience in, in the purchase, that is also ripe for a different revenue model right? that would fix that. 
Sure. Talk, so talk a little bit about uh, consumption and then quickly performance as well. Yeah. So, okay. So that's, that, that's the access issues. The consumption issue is actually a lot simpler is the idea that when I physically have this product in my house, do I actually use it? So, you know, cars, we may reach to actually buy one and then we own one, but then, you know, the statistics says that we use cars about 4% of the time. Does it make sense to own a car when you only use an asset 4% of the time? I don't know, right? Um, furniture, you might buy furniture, but then furniture, it's only, uh, you're only in that room once, I don't know, whenever, right? So consumption is basically, does the consumption of the product that I purchased actually warrant me owning it? And then performance is literally what it says. Once I have this car and once I'm sitting in it and once I'm using it, does it do what I would have liked it to do? Take me from A to B, take, my, take me safely from A to B, uh, and, and whatever other th reasons you might be looking for when you're buying a car. Well, Marco, this is excellent. Thank you so much. This The time is flying by. We're already up against our first break. want to remind wow. you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to our upcoming shows. And we do have all 363 of our shows previously up on that site. Please also go to Patreon. That Patreon channel is sponsored now by 90 Minds. Need one? Need a mind? Get one at 90minds.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for us at keyword voice America. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. And yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You 
were tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Marco Bertini, the author of The Ends Game. And, and Marco, I just loved how you ask this deceptively simple question, but you also say it's an existential question for the ends game companies. Can you kind of contrast for me just real quickly the difference between the revenue model question and the price question? Because I thought you did a really good job with that. Right, of course. So, you know, um, uh, so, the, so the, the, the classic sort of, the classic belief in organizations when I use the word price, um, that our minds typically go to, okay, so how much should we be charging, right? So should it be higher? Should it be lower? Um, and maybe something around how it's presented. What we seldom ask ourselves, I think, uh, at least is what I've observed in my experience, is a more fundamental, existential, strategic question, which is, Forget how much we are charging, what are we charging from? So I guess it's different between how much and the what. And the what is a very interesting question because, you know, clearly you are making lots of promises to customers in the marketplace. You know, we go out with advertising and communications and websites and salespeople that say, hey, trust us, if you buy this, you get this outcome, right? Um, and so we really have options, right? Do we, do, we, do we charge for what we've made? Do we charge for the outcome? And, and in particular, does it make a difference? So with Ed, which is my co-author, what we really wanted to do is, is, is put together a book that uh, on purpose and deliberately does not talk about prices. I don't even know if the word pricing is in the book itself <laughs> uh, on purpose, uh, but uh, we try to get it out of there as much as possible. Uh, the, but actually about the logic of where should my revenue come from, because that really can make a difference to how risk is shared. We discussed this with Ed a little bit before the break, how risk is shared between me and my customers. And that risk sharing is very important because if I can put the risk where it's sit, where it can be managed better, the market just expands. And so there's just more value for everybody. It doesn't mean I'm going to capture it later when I actually do product prices. It just means there's more value to be had, right? And, and that's great for everybody. Right, right. right. No, I, I love it. Um, one of the reasons I loved your book is Ed and I, for the last three and a half, four years, have been talking heavily about the subscription business model. Right. And I do see things heading that way. And you say in the book, it's just a stepping stone, you know, toward the end game. And, and that's what really got me to thinking. But do you think when I look at some of these subscription models, it, it really has for, forced them to think about the outcome. I forget the name. I apologize. But there's an outfit in the Nordic countries. They do eye exams and eyeglasses. You're not buying eye exams and eyeglasses. You're buying perfect eyesight. And that's the outcome that they're charging for. So it seems to me like they have changed the revenue model. Do you think subscription is a step in the right direction, I guess is what I'm asking. I, 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 yeah, and I, I totally think so. So if we go back to the discussion before this, you know, these ingredients, access, consumption, and performance. So if the if the people listening to the show can see them in a line from left to right, right, on the very right is the customer's outcome. So anytime I move away from selling things to one step closer to the outcome, access, then consumption, then performance, and maybe even outcome itself, value itself, I'm getting closer to the customer. I'm being, my revenue model is more customer focused. And, and that's, that's, the, that's the idea. The more it's customer focused, the more me, my own business is aligned with the customer's own equation. And if we're moving in the same direction, we have less waste. 
There's less inefficiency. And subscriptions, by all means, they are the first stepping stone there because they really ease access. They make it a lot better. So they're, they're addressing much better than a transaction would the access problems. And so any marketplace, like we were saying before, where access is an issue because it's too expensive, the library is too big, because it's too inconvenient to buy, any of those markets benefit from a subscription because value is just released. The market just grows exponentially. Um, but we are careful in the book to say as great as subscriptions are, that is one step in a three, an, a logical three-step process. And, and you see now all these uh, ex-ass uh, models, you know, anything as a service models, especially the, the SaaS models, if you've been sort of looking at them recently, they're all moving to a consumption model. They're, they're, as the data gets better and more granular and finer, they're slowly adding, and I would say going to ultimately move to a consumption element because you can measure that consumption component within a SaaS model um, and, and charge accordingly. Right. So, you know, I love your line about performance over promises, right? Customers should be paying for performance, not promises. But since we work with so many professionals, I have to ask this question. Are you really saying that an oncologist is only going to get paid if they put the cancer in remission? Now, you've got some great drug examples, and I want to ask you about those too, but I'm talking about the oncologist service. How do you see that unfolding for professionals? Right. So, um, so I, I think what we, are, what we are careful of doing in the book, and, and maybe we could have been even more careful in the book, is the, 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 the argument we want to make is that this, this progression is natural, right? Um, what's happening is that, of course, there are constraints upon our ability to change our revenue model. For example, the availability of data is one. SaaS models without knowledge of consumption without being able to measure it, cannot move the consumption model. It just makes no sense. The other big one is control over outcomes. And it's a, it's a fascinating topic in and of itself. I, can, I would like to charge for, for, for proof rather than promises, right? Uh, performance rather than something else. However, we have to acknowledge the fact that sometimes our own customers or intermediaries have something to do with the actual outcomes themselves. I, I, I'm not the one, I'm, me, the company that is not the only one, me, the service provider is not the only one affecting the performance that's happening. There are other things going on around me. There's uncertainty and a lot of it, I don't control myself. Now, to the extent that I cannot control an outcome, then of course you have to ask yourself, why would I charge on that outcome, right? And, and, and so we, we, in the last part of the book, we're careful to sort of specify what are some of the constraints to this natural evolution. And the point we try to sort of, um, and make the reader interested in it is that a lot of these constraints are actually going down. So every industry, in our opinion, is moving that way, but they're moving at different speeds depending on how fast those walls can come down around control, around data and whatnot. And, and yeah, you even give some uh, strategies to mitigate the risk you know, that the company is assuming from the customer not doing what right. you, you prescribe. But, and, and a great example, you talk about, a, can you talk about Abilify, my site? the approved drug from the FDA? Because that's a great example of really out-of-the-box thinking. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's, it, so there's, there is lots of examples that come from that health space. Uh, it's one of those industries I always thought of, it, and, and I, I've been doing quite a lot of work in that space, and I find it fascinating, A, because it's a consequential industry. I mean, it's an important one, right? We're talking about some important, uh, an important category. And B, it's, it, it, 
it's one of those industries that is very important, like I said, but also the, the, the ability to measure performance is increasing exponentially over the last few years with, with, with all the technologies that we're developing. And it's also an industry that is very complex, typically, where the government is usually typically involved, depending on the country. Uh, so there's a lot of things going on, right? And so uh, any innovation that is coming to market, and there's, there's a lot of them coming to market recently, and all the companies that I worked with have the same fundamental issue. We are now able to understand how our treatment, how our drug is actually impact the quality of life of people. Clearly, you're taking a treatment or a quality or, 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 a, or, a, or a drug because you are uh, want to improve the quality of your life. What do we do? <laughs> do, we, do, you know, do we sit here and sort of keep on pushing a model based on pills, based on whatever it is, or do we start incorporating uh, quality of life? Like, for example, they might do in Europe with the quality adjusted life years and, and, and other issues. And, and, and so the, the, it's an industry where, no, the, the paradox comes, sorry, I, I was mentioning a paradox before. The paradox comes that even though it's a perfect hotbed for this kind of innovation and this kind of thinking, it is also the perfect, uh, the perfect sort of context for companies to be very inward looking which is what we call the quality paradox in the book. In the, if you remember in the book, we talk about this idea that the companies that are most R&D, most technologically intensive, the ones that create lots of value for the customers and the companies that should be doing this change first are actually the most inward looking because they're very much looking at their innovations and technologies. It's a very hard discussion to have in a pharma company. Hey, think about customer outcomes. Like, well, what, what, what is that? What is that? I mean, you know, what's that? Right, you know, right. it's, 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 it's amazing coming from, well, as a marketing professor, I, I look back and I go, wow, that's really amazing. But, you know, when you're in there and consumer electronics is the same thing. Anything that is uh, te technology intensive, even though they're the ones that have the most benefit from changing the revenue model, in my opinion, they're actually the ones that will struggle the most because they just have years and years and years and years of looking inside and looking at attributes and looking at features. Uh, you know, it's very hard for them to empathize with the other side of the marketplace. Well, Amgen certainly did that, right? You talk about the Amgen and the Harvard Pilgrim team up where they had that right. drug Rapatha and they actually ended up dropping the price yeah. because its performance wasn't there. Absolutely, because that's kind of one of the things when you get into this sort of process, uh, one of the things that you may end up realizing is actually your price level is wrong, right? We didn't want to, we didn't want to get into it in the book because the book is not about price levels. Uh, the book is about changing the model such that you make the, you, you're able to address as big of the market as possible. But clearly, if, you're, if your product has been under-consumed or if your product is underperforming, at some moment, you're going to, when, you're, when you make yourself transparent through your revenue model, you're going to have to adjust those price points because the idea is that then you bring in more customers. It's, you know what I mean? It's not like yep. lowering yep. for the sake of lowering. It's lowering to adjust to what you're actually delivering in the marketplace, which then will get a response from your customers. Right. right. You know, you also wrote that the ends game is best played in the singular, not the plural. Does that work? Are you saying basically price each individual customer across access, consumption and performance? Uh, in a, in a, on a piece of paper, when you, uh, you know, when you think about the model, it, it does, right? But it's, it's, again, it's a way for us to sort of say, look, if we're going to, if we're really thinking about customer value, of course, customers are heterogeneous. Customers differ. And so, Whereas they may not differ necessarily 
on what drives their value, which is then going to be your performance metric, they're clearly going to differ on how much enjoyment they get out of that particular metric, right? So we might, me and you might agree that we, we care about cars from, to get from A to B, but you really want to get from A to B more than I do want to. And even yourself, depending on at some moment, you want to get from A to B much fast, much better than another times because you're in a rush or whatever it is. So it's very contextual, right? And to the extent that it's possible, let's leverage technology to make those prices more granular without confusing customers necessarily. So, you know, there's always a trade-off. Right. And of course, that's where yeah. you slam into your problems with algorithmic pricing, uh, right? Correct. With- Absolutely. Yeah, well, I'll probably, hit, I'll probably hit you up with questions on that in the last segment. So, Marco, okay. this has been great. Unfortunately, we're up against our next break. And, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. I'd like to give out a shout-out to our new uh, sponsor, File. Check out File. They do great expense reporting, and that's at filehq.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercial commercials plus bonus content go to patreon.com slash tsoe subscribe now and be free you're worth it Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. His book is called The Ends Game, How Smart Companies Stop Selling Products and Start Delivering Value. 
Marco Bertini is on the Soul of Enterprise today. And, and Marco, wanted to ask you um, about some of the things that you talked about in the book, and there's been some changes. You you note that General Motors had launched this thing, uh, Book by Cadillac. Uh, lots of other auto companies had followed suit, Volvo, BMW, Mercedes-Benz, Audi, Porsche. A lot of them have kind of backtracked on that in the in in their in recent times so i just wanted to ask you what what you thought why why is that what 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 did, what mistake perhaps did they make yes yeah, so i was having exactly this discussion with i forget who about a few days ago because i was actually asking hey so what's going on with the car industry because you seem kind of going backwards and and i think the conclusion that we had at the table is is the following that you know one element which i don't think we do much justice in the book actually to be honest you know I, one advice that i got by the way as a parenthesis when i started writing the book is never assume that you can answer all of the question and so you wait to finish the book when it's all completely done because it's like a it's like a, an evolving animal right it just keeps on changing and i think this is one example of that and one thing we didn't do i think as much justice is the issue of like direct to consumer versus versus intermediated right um, and I think the logic is that whenever your business is initially non so intermediated, so you go through somebody, um, it, it adds complications. And so in the carry, so the discussion that we had about the automotive sector is exactly about that, right? That the car companies didn't have do not have that much of a, a direct relationship with its drivers, but more so with the with the dealers, right? And so that's a that's a uh, how do you set up? You know, a subscription model that is D to C, right to consumer, where without getting upset your dealers and and all the networking cost structure that goes with it, right? Um, it, 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 apparently, the, 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 there's a few folks that were directly in the industry and they, they were pointing to this. It they try to go too early into subscription without sorting out the channel. Right? And, and there's different models of doing this, by the way. Um, I'm thinking, for example, I don't know if you know, I, I think that's also in the book, HP and Instant Ink, mm -hmm. uh, how they, you know, they sell ink uh, through, typically through the staples of these worlds, Office Max and whatnot. Um, as far as I still know, they, 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 they still sell, they try to go direct to consumer and try to reach the consumer directly through when they buy a printer. But of course, they still rely on the, on the channel to even make the subscriptions to the Instant Ink. And I think the channel still today is still incentivized for getting those signups and incentivized across time, not just a one-off, which is kind of interesting, right? A channel, you're helping me subscribe a person for which I will have a relationship for hopefully for years and years, but I'm still paying the channel every month for, for, that, for that share of that relationship. And so I think that's it. Like with the car companies, they, they went out maybe a little bit early understanding the massive inefficiency, if there is even an industry with inefficiency, it's that one, in terms of access, super expensive cars, in terms of consumption, cars are hardly ever used, if you think about it, in terms of performance, you could even go there, right? Um, uh, but of course, didn't deal through the, 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 the intermediary, intermediary logistics. And as far as I can tell, the, I, and again, I'm, I'm not as educated as I would like on this particular industry, as far as I can tell, uh, I think Volvo is the one that's probably doing one of the better jobs out there. And now I think in some countries, especially in the Nordics, they don't even sell maybe cars directly anymore. They just sell through subscriptions. Um, so uh, that's wow. what I'd heard anyway. Yeah. 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 It's re really interesting. I think it, it, part of it, as Ron and I analyzed this over the years, is that they started to put more and more restrictions on it. And it almost just became, it was just a lease at that point and they called it a subscription but it, re it really wasn't they yeah. and they didn't do anything to what ron and i call plus the offering they didn't didn't do anything to say it was that much better than just having a lease 
Right, exactly, because at least it's basically at least it's purely it's purely a, like a financial solution to a problem, right. right? And when you think about subscriptions, and you think about it from the perspective that you're inching closer to the customer, then you you should if uh, you you should be forced to, but if you're not, then you should be doing it. You should be starting to think about what outcomes I'm really thinking about, and as you think about that, you start thinking, oh, then if that's the case, then I'm missing adding value here, I'm missing adding value there, right? So if you think back, back to the HP example, if I start having an ink subscription, then maybe at some point I start thinking about what customers truly want and the customers, maybe what they want is printing or, or, good, or memories, right? If you're talking about photo printing, right? And so you think, well, okay, oh, then it's not just ink, right? It's the printer that goes with it. The maintenance that goes with it, um, maybe some, some, maybe some uh, additional uh, value I can add through how to edit photographs. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking aloud here, right? But you know what I mean, right? Yep, yep. That's what I mean. The, yep, we talk about plussing it, coming up with something that makes it even that much better. And uh, the industry that 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 I'm from, the, the the show is sponsored by Sage, which is my employer. We we do we do accounting software. Sage Intact is in this mid market. And one of the things I've been working with on some of our partners is to move the because uh, we we sell our software. Software is a service, so it's a subscription. But our partner organizations were still doing the implementations of that as quote a a one off. Right, one-off project that they would have to do, and they were still selling the hours around that. So the the challenge for them is how how can they create a subscription-based service or an outcome-based service that it has is more perpetual that's around services. So talk a little bit about just services, the stuff that you've seen from a service standpoint. Yeah, and services are fascinating sort of context with the, from this because they you, you, it's something intangible, right? It has, a, it has many different layers by which you the invisible, as Harold Beckwith used to call it, right? Yeah. Selling the invisible. <laughs> Exactly, uh, but, but without saying that it's not there, right? It's, in, right. It's, 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 it's not quantified, but it's definitely there. You know when you see it, right? Yeah. Um, so services have that quality. Okay, services are very, have, have got a few things going for them, right? They have this quality of intangibility, right? Which then plays into actually, how do I measure an outcome? Okay. Then you've got this context of controllability, typical, which is also we talk about in the book. So when I, when, I sell a, when I sell a service, most likely my customer influences the quality of that service because that's just the nature of services. And so then can I control it or can I contract for it? It's, it's a very hard thing to do, right? Um, and so there, there, those are the main two factors, right? Those are two things that, that both the intangibility of it, which makes the quantification and, the, and telling you, hey, this is the outcome. Let's agree on this a bit harder to do and the controllability of it. But at the same time, it is actually, again, one of the better industries where you can actually get a lot of bang for your buck because it's the one where it's easy to, if you move to a performance-based model, at least in my experience, it's one where from a competitive perspective, it's so much easier to differentiate yourself from others. Just like a signaling mechanism in a sense, right? right? Oh, these guys are actually guaranteeing something, a performance-based model. And these folks, yeah, they're not going to. So even though it's like a nubulous in some way, Hey, as a customer, uh, there's a guarantee in place. So, what do I care about the cloud, right? It's you know, it's it's uh, it's and it's a strong signaling mechanism. So it can actually be quite. Um, but again, again, there it's. I, I'm always hesitant to say everybody just jump in and do this. You, you have to go through the steps, right? You have to be able to understand what is performance. Uh, can I control it again? And then how do I measure it, right? And then set up the right incentive structure for this to play through. Sure. Uh, it, it, 
uh, one of the, the conversations that Ron and I have been having for years and years and years with lots of people is is the struggle between efficiency and effectiveness in organizations, right? We, 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 we lovingly refer to it as the effing debate, EFF, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, efficiency, of course, kind of doing the thing right. Effectiveness is a doing the right thing for the customer. But you use a word and there's a, a story about Pearson. I'm not really necessarily interested in the Pearson story, but you, but uh, several times throughout the book, you use the, the, the and they, Pearson used used this term, the path to efficacy. Efficacy, yeah. Efficacy, which is yet now another EFF word that we can introduce. (laughs) How is is efficacy above and beyond even effectiveness? Oh, that you'd have to ask the Pearson folks, right? But I'll tell you, so uh, no, but no, no, I I have have my own answer. I mean, I actually ended up writing a case study that I teach to my students on, on, and it's a fascinating, being from education, I mean, it's a, it's cl- hits close to home, and I and I I adore this case study, the the context of it. Um, so they use the word efficacy because okay, so the context for the for the people listening. So Pearson is the world's largest education company. Uh, they but they they're they're they're, they're their public statements are, we are a learning company. We're not a textbook company. We're not a course book company. We are a learning company. And so there's their former CEO uh, woke up one day, I suppose, and said, hey, um, uh, we say that we are learning, the world's learning company, and we create learners, but we sell textbooks. So first of all, you know what, do we even know what learning means, right? And so they've embarked in this, then they called ultimately the efficacy program, which is an ongoing process just to tell you how long these things can be. This is uh, going on 10 years, I think. Um, Understanding what learning means in education space. Now, they use the word efficacy deliberately because that is the word that is used in healthcare. Right. The, uh, see, now in healthcare, you talk about efficacy of something, right? That it's working, it's doing what it's supposed to do. And in learning, they wanted to have some, uh, they wanted to, because it's, it's very intangible learning, they wanted to bring it to something tangible sounding. And so they ended up using the word efficacy, right? Uh, in, all, in, all of, in all of their material. Well, the, the way I like to describe efficacy is, you know, where effectiveness is, d- does it help, right? D- does it help the customer? Does it, 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 does it benefit the customer? Efficacy, in a way, is saying, is what it, it, does it acquire the maximum possible benefit? Right? I, I, um, yeah. For, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, what, what, uh, the uh, erectile dysfunction drugs are highly efficacious. <laughs> I don't know if I use this as an example, but I would, uh, I, would, I would be along the lines that you are. So, you know, we know learning is good. Nobody, did, nobody, nobody, nobody argues that the valence of learning, right? Mm-hmm. The question is, how much learning are you, you know, how much is your ROI on learning uh, as high as possible? So if it is, that's efficacious, if that's a... That's the word. <laughs> yeah. No, no and it, it, it is. And I think it is. It, I'm glad that Pearson is doing this because as you talk about it in the book, so many people think that these textbook companies, it's, it's, I hear this all the time. It's a sham. It's, it's a total sham. It's a scheme. It's a, but I, it seems that Pearson is saying, hey, listen, we want to change the way that we've gone about doing this and, and are making great strides in it. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and, and even if you think a little bit broader uh, uh, to the, um, at the sector in general, you know, how much taxpayer money, I know in Europe, and I imagine the same thing happens here in the US, how much taxpayer money is going into education and nobody's going to say, oh, no, no, let's not put money into education. We don't want our children to be smart, right? But can we tell if it's going in the right direction? I mean, should we be spend, can we be spending less, 
half as much and having twice as much of the impact, that would be nice. And so all these schools that are, these colleges that are coming out, like the coding schools that are coming out now, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this, they're doing something very interesting, which is um, don't pay me tuition and fees. Now, away from textbooks, now courses, right? Don't pay me tuition and fees. When you get a job, I'll take a percentage of your salary. Because I'm training you to be a coder. When you get a coding job, uh, we can talk, right? And of course, there is issues around that too, right? You can you can do all sorts of funny business, right? But the concept is interesting, right? Yeah, yeah, you it's re- I mean? really really for the outcome. That's clearly yeah. the outcome. So, yeah. yeah, wow, Marco, this is terrific. Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home in the fourth segment, but uh, I'm 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 up against my time, so I just want to quickly thank you for for appearing today. Uh, but folks, want to remind you that you can contact either of us by sending one email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Mentioned earlier, our Patreon channel on our Patreon channel, which is patreon.com/tsoe, you can listen to commercial-free episodes, including the witty banter that we have with our guests but during the commercials as well as our bonus episodes which we do once a week as well but right now a word from our sponsor and my employer sage follow us on twitter at voice america trn get the lowdown on guests new shows and your favorites that's voice america trn Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Marco Bertini, the author of The Ends Game. And Marco, I know you've probably been asked this on every interview, but I've got to ask you because I don't think our listeners have ever heard it. Please explain the experiment at, what is it, Tetra New? Comedy Tetra Theater Tetra in Neu. Barcelona. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Tetra, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a t- difficult one to pronounce. So um, this is actually run by uh, by by a friend of mine, a, a colleague of mine. So it's it's all right. So the idea is the following: this is a comedy theater, and it's a comedy theater that does like any other comedy theater or any other theater or any other sort of live event uh, company outfit would do, which is you know sell tickets to its comedy shows and at some point they sort of realized that um, in part to sort of make a point in part to sort of fight against uh, some of the changes in legislation that happened in Spain and basically those changes in legislation drastically reduced the audiences coming to the shows they said to themselves you know what let's lower the let's lower the risk factor for customers let's put some of the risk from a show onto our shoulders, in which in this context means let's not charge them for a ticket. Because if I charge you for a ticket, you've bought the, sh- the ticket to the show and you go there. And if you don't laugh, all that risk is on the, on the spectator's shoulders, right? So we're not going to charge for entrance. And then uh, if you laugh, we charge you per laugh. Right. And how does that work? Well, it requires technology. So they put some iPads, you know, think about the seat in the seat back in front of you. Right. They, they sleep on there, an iPad that is facing you. The camera of the iPad is facing you and it has face recognition installed face recognition software that basically can recognize somebody's smiles. I suppose you calibrate it first a little bit and then recognizes your smile. So the idea was that uh, as the show is running, you're looking at the show. Uh, hopefully you're not trying to stop yourself from laughing because you know you're going to be charged for the laughter, but you, you know, you're being normal <laughs> and something is funny. And so you laugh and then the iPad registers one laugh, two laughs, three laughs, four laughs. And I think it was like five euro cents. I, I don't remember the exact number, but yep. some low amount per laugh. And then when you walk out of the theater, you get charged based on what you laughed uh, with a cap, you know, with a cap, cap right, at, right. at $20 or 20 years or something. And, um, and so we, we had to have that example in the book because, again, it's one of those situations, one of those contexts which you think the outcome is – because we try to have, we try to have uh, a mix of, con- of contexts and industries, but also some of them where the reader might think, this is great as a theory. But how can you outcomes? How do you measure that? I mean, what is that? It's impossible, right? I can see it in B2B, but I cannot see it in B2C. So we wanted to have things like this theater that says, okay, enjoyment. How do I capture that and monetize it? Well, enjoyment means a smile and a smile can be recorded if you've got a camera. And so, you know, it's kind of cute how, how, how that kind of played out. No, it's a great example of just putting some real thought into how you can innovate the revenue model. And uh, you give many other examples in the book, too, that are just excellent, like that rock blaster in Australia. Yes. Charging yes, for the, you know, how, how, yeah. Small, yeah, how small they can blast the rock. Marco, let me ask you this. I know you're coming back to Harvard Business School. How does this apply to Harvard? Like you say, I want to buy learning, <laughs> not schooling. Right? I want to buy education, maybe lifelong education. Why can't I subscribe to Harvard? Good question. It's way above my pay grade, I, uh, I, I, I imagine. But that's exactly, look, I, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I've been in the business school sort of industry for some years now. And that is a discussion. That is the discussion that the people have in business schools all the time, right? How do we, how do we, you know, technologically, our industry is changing a lot, and, and with with the whole COVID situation, it changed drastically a lot. Everybody teaching uh, uh, remotely, um, but along those techn- the technological changes, how do we 
is there monetization in line with that? And many, many schools will come to the conclusion that not. Many schools would like to make changes, but I think, I mean, I guess, you know, this is just my own, my own opinion, right? What I think it's happening is you've got certain, there are certain levels of schools, right? And, and certain schools have a, a very high prestige. And I think I would put Harvard in that, in that particular bucket. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to you know change the course of a ship when you're doing very well. I mean, you know, I imagine I imagine the school is doing very well. I don't I don't know for a fact, but I imagine the school is doing very well as it has in the past. And so you know, it's just a bit of legacy and sort of you know um, momentum to these things. Unfortunately, and this is something we always teach at business school. Sometimes the greatest changes in a company, the greatest pivots, come when you have to, right? Because right, right. you're facing. And so to the extent that Harvard or any other major business school uh, doesn't necessarily feel the need to make a change yet, right? They don't, I think. But then we're discussing this before the break. Like, so, uh, you know, some of these, you may have like, these coding schools that are changing the way they're, they're, they're monetizing to charge by the actual, when you actually get a job, because that's an outcome. So you have all these niches in the market building up and it'll be interesting to see how it plays up, how it plays out, you know, in the future. Right. You know, Clayton Christensen used to say very few companies can actually disrupt themselves, yeah. right? Yeah. And, the, the, uh, those examples are, f- are few and far between because of the cannibalization that goes with that. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And you mentioned cannibalization. Andy Grove used to say, if you're going to be cannibalized, better to dine with friends. <laughs> better to do it to ourselves before it's yes. done to us. Yes. Uh, on that, I want to ask you, you, you talk about, can you have multiple revenue models in the same business? I've been giving this a lot of thought recently because I look at companies like Apple, Disney, and even Porsche that has a subscription, but they're still selling old fashioned units and all of that. Does it really work to have two revenue models or more in one company? Yeah, so I think uh, I think it, it can for several for several reasons. First of all, let's take the automotive case for as an example. Uh, if you think about your customer, it depends on what it depends on how you define an outcome. So I, I would imagine that for some people, owning a Ferrari is an outcome in of itself. I don't really want to drive it necessarily. I, you know, I just want to have it. I mean, I want to tell people that I have one, right? So actually ownership is in and of itself the outcome. So, you know, on those three stages I was mentioning to Ed before, uh, access consumption, they actually collapse into one. And so it might well be that in different contexts, there are different outcomes and those are served by different revenue models. So that's perfectly fine. Another one is more of like... Um, and an economists would call it off equilibrium. Like it's, you know, it's, it's transitioning sort of thing, right? We are transitioning to another revenue model. We have a lot of legacy. We don't necessarily want to cannibalize ourselves quickly. And by the way, customers have to get used to a new way of buying. It's not as if it's right. very easy for them to switch from one to the other. And so we have these multiple models. And what do we do? We let customers self-select into the mm-hmm. revenue model that fits them best. And so we, and then of course, internally, also politically, it might be a better sell, right? Because I'm not cutting off the job of X amount of salespeople. I'm, you know, I, I am managing also the transition myself. So there's a perfectly viable reason for just smoothing one thing to the other. Right. Um, you see, there's, there's potentially different reasons for having these revenue models at the same time. Right. You know, you recently wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review, September, October issue, 
uh, the pitfalls of pricing algorithms. Right. We've only got about a minute and a half, Marco. It's unfair, but give me the summary. That is really unfair. Okay, so uh, years ago, so the elevator pitch is the following, that of course, we want to use technology to make our pricing decisions better. So because this is very complex, I'm going to ask a machine to help me do it. The problem with the problem, and I'm saying this with air quotation marks, nobody can see me, but I'm doing air quotations. The problem with this is that um, uh, and, and machines are great at optimizing something they can see to say it plainly, right? And what they don't see is um, the, 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 the psychological elements of changing prices very fast, unpredictably sometimes. And so customers, what they do, they've always been doing this, by the way, and you know this, they look at a price and say, what's going on here? What's the company doing? Why are they doing it? What, what about the product? Is, why, why is this product cheaper? What's wrong with the product? So customers fill in the blanks when they see, when they see price changes. What's the reasoning behind this? And so if you put this kind of on steroids, right? When you'd like, you change prices very often, customers are like, well, uh, what's really going on here? Right. And so you need, so algorithms are great from an optimization perspective, but of course you have to have some, you have to bring the psychology and the sociology back into this. Otherwise you run the risk of really telling customers, we love you on the one hand, but on the other hand, but you're still a wallet. <laughs> Right, right. right. You, you know what I mean? So, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it, it, it's humans versus machines and judgment and all of that. Exactly. But Marco, yeah. this has been a great honor. Thank you so much for coming. We hope you come well, back you. at some point. <laughs> and uh, stay with us as we do our live close. But, Ed, what do we have coming up next week? We're going to move down the I-95 corridor and go to NYU next week, Ron. And we're going to talk to Baruch Lev of NYU Stern about the about accounting. Excellent. Author of The End of Accounting. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's noon Pacific. In the meantime... Please feel free to visit us at our website, www.thesoulofenterprise.com.